The only difference is the terminology is different, right? The energy, the approach, the heart behind it is exactly the same. The personhood, the value of seeing that person, connecting with that person, speaking with that person, understanding their social story. That was Tracy Human talking about caring for individuals with intellectual or developmental disability, or IDD. She's a pain and symptom management consultant who provides education and palliative care in the community. She's joined by Bob Park, a bioethicist in this episode, where we discuss how the seven keys for a life-changing diagnosis apply to individuals with IDD and their families. It's an eye-opening episode where we discuss the heart of palliative care, which is how to achieve truly person-centered care for conditions that aren't usually thought of as life-limiting. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Tracy, Bob, so glad you could join us. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm delighted to be joining you. And, yeah. and I'm happy to be here with you as well. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Our pleasure. So Tracy, I know you are a pain and symptom management consultant. Correct. And Bob, you are a bioethicist. Um, maybe you can tell us in a few sentences what you both do on a sort of a daily basis so our listeners catch up on, on your work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would refer them back to one of your earlier podcasts with Mahogany Hines. And she spoke for the whole collective, pretty much, um, of the consultants across the province of Ontario. But our role is to capacity build. Um, in all things palliative care, in all sectors, <laughs> uh, predominantly in the community, uh, long-term care, community service sectors, primary care, um, and with the additional mandate to coach that knowledge to practice. Because we know that education alone doesn't promote the level of change that we want and how things look, smell, feel, and touch is often different in real life. Mm -hmm. And to be able to mentor that into uh, what it would look like for the population, a particular organization or facility serves, as well as policies and procedures and those sorts of things to support using the right tools um, for, for the right task. Uh, and then we sit on a lot of advisory, we partner in research, um, not only in Ontario, but across the country, many of us. And uh, we uh, sit on numerous tables. I, I had the benefit of being on the OPCN, um, the Ontario Palliative Care Network's Clinical Advisory Council. And uh, um, other places in the past, other networks in the past. And so that's what I do. And that's where I met Tracy was on the OPCN um, Clinical Advisory Committee. And I'm Bob, I'm the bioethicist, not Bob the Builder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I've been a bioethicist for many years in a, in a community hospital. I was at Humber River Hospital for many years and then I, I retired in 2018 to be a caregiver. But at the same time, I was still doing some work at um, University Health Network with an overlap at um, Surrey Place, uh, which is a, a center that works with folks with intellectual disabilities. Um, and something that I believe very, very strongly in is that healthcare is a continuum and that the majority of healthcare is in the community and that hospital care is an episode of care. And something I 
believe very strongly in is to try as much as possible to go upstream to do some of the work that we need to do. And Sammy, I've heard you speak about, you know, the the, the notion of the natural course of an illness. And mm-hmm. one of the examples that challenges me is folks who don't know that their loved ones with dementia will have swallowing problems. Mm-hmm. And they end up in the emergency department with aspiration pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And so I try to get out to the long-term care homes, meet with family councils, and mm-hmm do a little bit of a teaching in, in preparation for what might happen. So for me, there was a prevention part of bioethics mm-hmm. that has been very important to me. I wanted to start with palliative care and then get to IDD and just as a subsequent yeah. question. But um, we were just talking about this today, Sammy and I. We, were tr- we really were trying to, as we spread our message, talk to people like yourselves who are providers and patients and families as well, um, like real firsthand experiences, particularly of, you know, this idea of the keys that we put out in our podcast, and I know you've listened. So I guess my question is really about in your work in palliative care or your own personal experiences, do these keys resonate with you and and how are you using them? I would say they absolutely resonate. Mm. And it is certainly things that those of us that have been practicing in palliative care, and I've been doing it for 35 years now, Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it resonates highly, mm-hmm. not only in, in my professional work, but also in my personal life, because I'm the baby of seven siblings, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm the last survivor of my siblings and was mm-hmm. involved in their end-of-life care journey. Mm-hmm. So six of them and two parents um, and a few friends and their parents. There's a lot of personal journey there. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting comparative uh, because it was only because of some of my work professionally that it equipped me for the right questions at the right time and mm-hmm. stages. Uh, at, at the same time, there is that duplicity of uh, being the sister, mm-hmm. being the daughter, uh, and the emotional burden and the changes you experience through that. And sometimes you can't be, in my instance, the nurse and the sister at the same time. Um, and how you do that dance, because it's really a dance, this whole journey, right? It's like a symphony that comes together. And how do you navigate it? So I think the seven keys are a wonderful summary uh, as a starting place and empowering the individual and family. And we want to do that a lot in palliative care, right? Um, uh, For as much as the person and the family want to know uh, uh, and kind of meeting where they're at and then kind of doing gentle nugs and nudges and tugs here and there um, throughout that journey. So we don't see what many of us have seen, which is uh, pretty frightening end of life journeys with a lot of suffering attached that could have potentially, and in many instances been prevented upstream. Yeah. How about you, Bob? Certainly. Um, there are a number of the keys that certainly resonate with me and both personally and sort of and in my professional experience. And one of the ones that resonates very strongly with me is um, expect ripple effects. 
mean, I, and I was listening to the podcast when about this, and I thought how true it is because of the ripple effects that the caregivers are going to experience, and 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 for many caregivers, they themselves may become ill with the caregiving burden and need to be prepared for what can they expect, what resources might be there to support them as well. And, and one of the things I value in the philosophy of palliative care is we're not just caring for the person. It is their social social support network. And I would say how however that person defines it, because you know people may define family differently. Um, the other thing that's kind of important to me too is, um, I mean, the walking two roads, I think it's a lovely way of thinking about that. Um, and and thinking about hope too, because I've been with palliative care physicians and, and been on a journey with the patients and families around, okay, how does the hope evolve as we get towards the later stages? I mean, I may hope for a cure two years ago, but now as we're getting closer to the end stages, what am I hope for? I hope to reconcile with family. I hope to have less pain. I hope to have comfort. And so we shift the hope and still give them something to look forward to. Um, and and I, I do want to think a little bit, and I don't know if our dialogue will allow for this, um, a discussion about tailored um, in, in the population with intellectual disabilities. And I would certainly say, and from a cultural point of view, we have to think about who do we, who does the person want available to them to help them with decision-making because they, the persons that are on the hierarchy of decision-makers may not be necessarily the persons that they want and need. So we could talk about a number of things. Okay, <laughs> come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was one of our hopes, which was that as we were thinking about this, you know, as you know, mm -hmm. we thought about this was about end of life and then palliative care is much broader and going upstream, but we had always, as we sort of were saying the seven keys, it is more than just about dying. It is about living well. It is about um, chronic disease, chronic and progressive disease even. Yes. And so we had always thought it could be applicable to other populations without necessarily having that, you know, frontline experience that you have. So we, mm -hmm. we are so honored that you're going to, um, what your thoughts are about how these keys could apply to a different population, the uh, mm. individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, which, you know, the acronym for that is IDD. Right. Correct. Mm -hmm. That's correct. That's what it is here uh, in Ontario, uh, Canada, some areas, they call it developmental disabilities. Um, uh, internationally, they may call it learning disabilities, like in the UK and the European Union. Uh, those are the sorts of things that they call it. But you know, as, as you know, I was preparing to be able to come to spend some time with you today. Um, I was ref reflecting about the word, the word waiting room revolution. Um, and revolution is a powerful word and a much needed word, particularly when we're talking about specifically palliative care as it relates to people living with an intellectual or developmental disability. Mm -hmm. uh, because there is specificity with, within IDD. And um, uh, what I've learned over the past couple of years, I've been serving that, that population for 14 years as a specific going out to target to capacity build and be able to engage with them. But we developed a committee um, in, uh, at the end of 2019 for Ontario. It's the Provincial Intellectual and Developmental Disability Palliative Care Committee. 
Uh, and what I've learned over the, the years that we've been working together and developing a toolkit for Ontario uh, is the rich support, cultural uh, and services, um, and the approaches that are used within the developmental sector. Uh, and what's encouraging is so much of the work that they do in the developmental sector is about living. And that's what palliative specialists say, right? Palliative care is about living until you're not, right? And so that's their focus of work. And when you look at their resources, their models, their guides, and how they go about delivering services and their approach to quality of life and enrichment and, and, and everything that they do, it closely, um, matches the model to guide hospice palliative care and the palliative care approach. The only difference is, is the terminology is different, right? The energy, the approach, the heart behind it is exactly the same. Uh, the personhood, the value of seeing that person, connecting with that person, speaking with that person, understanding their social story, Yes. And how we modify, because within the IDD um, group of individuals, there are those who have mild, moderate, severe, and profound disability. And how do we create that branch that carries across to see the personhood in individuals with severe and profound? This is where we see the greatest amount of diagnostic overshadowing, uh, unconscious bias about value. So I think you're saying you're not talking about end of life care for people living with IDD, but rather an a palliative approach to care all throughout for people living with IDD. I want people to recognize that when we're talking about people living with IDD, it's not just about people with Down syndrome. I want you to be you know, our listeners to broaden their horizon um, because there's a lot of opportunity around the various different etiologies and conditions for learning. If you can do it well, air quotes, get it right, for people living with IDD, you can do a palliative approach to care even in the most complex of cases uh proficiently and or expertly if you can do it well with the needs here with this with this group it's quite remarkable and so um uh there's all kinds of places that you know i would encourage people to think of where will you within your purview your organization your services begin to think about how you can engage with developmental services Mm -hmm. um, because they're not on our palliative care radar. Residential hospice is, uh, their community outreach hasn't made it a strategic initiative, which would be beneficial. Mm -hmm. There are pockets of excellence that are happening out there. And how do we go to where they are? Hospital is not the right place for end of life care. Hospitals are incredibly traumatizing and distressing and cause these individuals to deteriorate quicker. Um, Long-term care is not the right place. Developmental services 
that work with in supported independent living homes, congregate living homes, and the complex high intensity needs homes want to keep the individuals at home whenever possible. And so what are the barriers to supporting them at home or just getting the best care more generally? There are challenges, for example, with people meeting issues like diet, or I think diagnostic overshadowing is what Tracy said earlier too, that the, the prejudices that we can, you know, we feel sometimes when we look at somebody and think, oh, you know, they have uh, uh, an intellectual disability, and we may not necessarily think that they've had a full and rich life, and because of that may not treat them in the same way. Um, I mean, I remember a consult that I got when I was at the, in the hospital where a, a person came in from a group home, and the physician wasn't quite sure how aggressive to be in the diagnostics and therapies and treatments for this particular person, but I'm grateful that that physician um, consulted with me, and I called the group home and found out that this person was a member of the disabled uh, sailing, they were a baseball fan, they enjoyed cooking in their place when they were able to do that, and they had a loving family within their group home, and when I was able to record and tell the social story of this patient, the care changed. Now, I don't think it should, but it indicates a sort of a risk. Um, I'll get. I'll let Tracy just say, um, speak a lot more fulsomely than I can. But one of the things that I've had concern, for example, with the folks with Down syndrome who may experience dementia before the age of 65, because they're under 65, they may not be eligible for a, a consult with a geriatrician who may know very well how to manage um, dementias. And so that for me is one of the practical concerns with this population. And, and sir, thank you Sian, for giving me an opportunity, but I'll turn it over to Tracy to elaborate more. Yeah, thank you. Um, so globally, people living with IDD fare worse across all healthcare indicators. There is a huge disparity in wellness care. Mm-hmm. number one, that then impacts them that results in premature death. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, it's interesting when you think about the average life expectancy for the majority of individuals. Now, there are always those individuals that, you know, are on either side of the continuum, but we're just Mm -hmm. talking about on average, most of the individuals in Ontario at least, and and I suspect is the same throughout Canada. It certainly was in Manitoba where I was born and raised before I moved here, were raised in institutions. Yes. They were separated from their families as babies or as infants or as young children. The healthcare professionals of the day felt it was better for them to be in institutions. That was not the case. Uh, The result of that was their life expectancy on average was 35 to 36 years of age. That was because of the neglect that they received. And unfortunately, they are uh, survivors of multiple levels of trauma physical, emotional, sexual trauma, forced sterilization, the list goes on. Now this was done at the hands of healthcare providers. So when we see some of the deficiencies in accessing primary care 
And when we're talking about those who are at chronic, advanced and end stage illness, the individuals that were in institutionalized care before they were moved into congregate setting, and the last ones here in Ontario just closed in 2009, the last three. These are the individuals that we're seeing now in our healthcare stream. They're terrified of us because we were the kinds of people that did this to them. And so there's a lot of healing and a lot of change in approach that needs to happen from healthcare providers. And that's where we leverage our developmental service workers, right? Yes. So the DS workers or the developmental services workers, they are so critical to ensuring the best care for people living with IDD. I don't think I realized how much trauma they could have faced before. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if it might be helpful for the listeners, if maybe we could list some of the conditions um, that result in intellectual and developmental disabilities, just so we're not being too vague for the listeners about who these people might be. When we talk about some of the common etiologies, when we're talking about the deletion syndromes that, you know, like Rett syndrome, um, Williams syndrome, Prader-Willi, Smith-Magenis, Angelman, Fragile X, um, those are all under, you know, deletion, um, chromosomal deletion. We have our Down syndrome, which is an, an additional. And then we have fetal alcohol syndrome, some of the individuals that are on the autism spectrum disorder, and some individuals with um, neuromuscular diseases, if they fit the IDD definition. And so under the Ontario Services and Supports to, support, to Promote Social Inclusion of Persons with Developmental Disabilities Act from 2008, developmental disability, and here on the podcast, we're using the term IDD, is an umbrella term for different disabilities that involve the person that has prescribed significant limitations in cognitive functioning, adaptive functioning, and those limitations originated before the person was 18 years of age mm -hmm. are likely to be lifelong in nature and affect areas of major life activity, such as personal care, language, skills, um, learning abilities, the capacity to live independently uh, as an adult or other prescribed activities. And so in some instances, um, someone with cerebral palsy would not fit that criteria at all, right? And then in some instances, we have more of a dual diagnosis scenario with, with those challenges that they're living with and they have CP, right? And so uh, there's individuals with, you know, um, that are living with the consequences of maternal rubella um, that had meningitis um, and so on. And so it really is uh, incredibly broad um, and highly specific at the same time, mm -hmm. right? It's very individualized what we're talking mm -hmm. about, but there is a framework that we're looking at. 
uh, yeah, so you know the prevalence is two to four percent. That's what we're working with right now, as our estimate. Um, uh, uh, knowing that it's it's more than that, um, and and that majority of these individuals would benefit from a palliative care approach. Mm-hmm. Now, the palliative care approach and the tools has to be modified because mm-hmm. um, our gold standards don't translate well for these individuals at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate? That was one of my questions. Um, mm-hmm. The, uh, mm-hmm. the You know, there are a lot of tools to try to help people to apply a palliative care approach. What are they missing that's not capturing? How do they need to be modified? You just sort of hinted at, yeah. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about tools specifically, so those that are familiar with palliative care will be familiar with the palliative performance scale, the PPS. Yeah. That doesn't work because many of these individuals have distinct frailty and they would score as end of life their whole life. Yeah. Mm-hmm particular are moderate, severe, and profound. So the PPS doesn't work. If you are an expert and a specialist, you'd be able to do the translation, Mm -hmm. but it's not gonna catch people. Mm -hmm. The palliative prognostic index um, has benefit, but you know, we tend to layer that on at end of life anyways, to refine clinical estimated survival time. The gold standard framework is wonderful and clinicians would use that because of the secondary health concerns and comorbidities, but that's not helpful for earlier ID uh, uh, out there in the community. It's highly a clinical tool. The surprise question is wonderful, but you have to have some idea what's informing that surprise question, right? when we talk about things like uh, pain identification and screening for um, those who can self-report, the ESAS is too abstract. Zero to 10 doesn't work, right? It has to be something for mild or moderate that is a four or five point scale. Is that a little bit of pain? More than that, really bad, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that translation of the tools um, or more than you can even take right? Um, the, the nonverbal and cognitively impaired tools. Now, here's the nuance. Just because somebody's nonverbal doesn't mean that they are profoundly intellectually disabled. When we talk about the early identification um, earlier about needs and where are the needs changing? What does that picture look like? We're needing to compare baseline to what's changed in the baseline for Mm -hmm. a person living with ID. Mm -hmm. And the tools need to um, have been built around baseline assessment. And so when we talk about the earlier ID, we're talking about the PALI tool, P-A-L-L-I tool, that's designed specifically for IDD, early identification. It goes across all their functional domains, Mm -hmm. right? And forces by the questions that we're comparing to baseline, including if breakthrough seizures are emerging. We're talking about the gold standard framework. The toolkit that we're developing 
is has been modified specifically for IDD. So how do we incorporate that with the existing mm -hmm. gold standard? If we're talking about pain and symptom screening, well, one of the pain tools that would be used would be called the CPS NAID, N-A-I-D. That's designed, has been tested, and has 94% reliability and specificity in people where we must translate behaviors to identify pain. Um, and so you begin to, and that, and that's just a bit of a, a dipping everyone's toe in the waters. I mean, I could talk for hours about the difference. I don't believe how you. We layer, layer the tools, <laughs> you know, and layer the tools, right, to yeah. equip everyone. Mm -hmm. But it, I, that gives a start. Yeah, right? I, I'm actually, I'm thinking about um, a patient that I had. Um, as you're talking as someone who had intellectual and developmental disabilities, and he would have met the criteria that you mentioned. And I'm just trying to think about like what was unique about this particular situation. He lived with his family. He couldn't live independently. Um, and he developed a cancer. Um, mm -hmm. And the things that I think stuck out for me were something that you've mentioned, which is this idea of baseline that it is super important or it was important for us to really um, trust that the family knew this um, yes. gentleman so well yes. that they could pick up on change, that um, their report of something being different or worrisome or concerning was had a lot of value because they based on their relationship and knowing the person, they were our best early identification tool because they pick up the change um, quite quickly. Yeah. And so they know them so well because of course families have typically, or in this scenario, I shouldn't say typically, been very vigilant, had spent a mm. lifetime protecting and um, yes. supporting this loved one. So um, they knew them yes. intimately, almost like I can just imagine like a mother knowing their baby, you know, like you just know that what the baby needs or yes. not that these people are babies, but it's just right. that intense relationship of caring um, that puts them in a, a, a a position with credibility, the families, right? And You're, so yeah. that was that was one huge thing. Another huge thing that stood out for me was um, how protective the family is mm -hmm. and how any kind of healthcare provider entering onto the scene has to be, or any change in care setting, we have to be uber mindful yes. of... Um, the mama bear syndrome, you know, yes. which is, which is to the person's benefit that this person comes like, like you said, um, Bob, as a unit of care with a, a very vigilant person right beside them. Um, and so uh, we do have to treat the families with the utmost respect and not um, dishonor the fact that they are not just um, privy to our care team, but they are the care team and they are, we are invited into their care team, not vice versa. Yes. Um, yeah, that's and, beautifully said, Sammy. That's yeah, beautifully and then said. 
the last thing is what you said about assessing symptoms. Um, that again, it's not um, typical how we would assess the symptoms. And again, a reliance on the family to tell us, um, how do you know that your loved one is in pain? What is it? Like looking at behaviors and change in behaviors, but that we use a whole different spidey sense around symptom assessment with this yes. patient population, right? So it, yes. it truly is, it is a really unique reflecting on my experience with this person and their family. It is, it was completely unique, humbling, um, enriching, enriching. And, and I have right? to tell you, like, just, you know, I'm constantly amazed at families who care for a loved one um, while they're, you know, yes. uh, right. declining at home. But this it particular, leaves you in awe. yeah, this right, scenario Sammy? was yeah, yeah. Un unbelievable and very, okay. And the family had more resilience than the average family because yes. they had already been doing it a lifetime. Yes. So there was a different hardiness to the family yes. um, and threshold for worry because this was just part of their life. It wasn't like me becoming a, a caregiver all of a sudden for mm. my mom, let's just say. So anyway, very unique and yeah. huge and humbling experience yeah. for me. Tracy and I are, as well as I know you are too, uh, a big fan of Dr. Harvey Chechenoff. Chechenoff. Mm -hmm. And certainly we think about just what you were saying about the family and, you know, what do you call that? The, the, the patient dignity question. Mm -hmm. and, and that patient dignity question and hearing the, so, and we would say in the DS sector about the social story and knowing mm -hmm. the person and knowing the family, knowing the resources. And, and that teaches us a lot. And, and Tracy has this wonderful story that I've, I've drawn on about how, in a group home where a person was cared for very much. And it was a very subtle change that identified that this person was in pain. Uh, and this person was, um, what do you call it? Stroking the tassels of a, of a, a lampshade. And, and when he was in, in discomfort, he would that's what he would do, stroke the tassels of the lampshade. But people- It was a new behavior. It was well, a new yeah. behavior. Yeah, mm -hmm. we're, we're not figuring out, this is, is a new behavior. What's different about this person? Mm -hmm. And then Tracy, uh, was able to identify what that is. Tracy, you've used the language of a behavior translator mm -hmm. to help somebody who mm -hmm. understands what that behavior meant. Mm -hmm. And when it was understood with that, that when he was in pain, he was stroking the and soothing himself with the tassels on the lampshade, then mm -hmm. there was a response to that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then we could move forward with it. Mm -hmm. it. It wasn't a typical behavior to stroke the tassels. It was new, mm -hmm. but it needed, you know, the the extra eyes coming in to say, is that a normal behavior? Yes. When did mm -hmm. that start? Then I could tie it to, yes, something had changed there medically. And then we could start investigating those sorts of things. But I love the fact that you talked about these amazing qualities of these amazing mm -hmm. families. Mm -hmm. And I would add to that is that we have a lot of disenfranchised people living with IDD that no longer have contact with family. Yes. Because of that institutionalized mm -hmm. separation. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. So family is deceased or they have elderly siblings that mm -hmm. may themselves be quite ill and or uh, living with their own uh, health challenges uh, and cognitive impairment and in long-term care. 
there's a lot of different reasons for it, but people with IDD consider their direct developmental service workers family. Yes. Yeah. Now, healthcare providers have a hard time with that because we, yeah. we like to talk about therapeutic boundaries and all the mm-hmm. rest of that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and you, we're just going to have to get over that. Mm-hmm. We're just going to mm-hmm. have to find a way to get over it because how they function works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the individuals will say, my service worker is my trusted mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. I want to discuss everything with them. And if I can't talk to you, mm-hmm. you need to listen to them. Mm-hmm. We need some legislation changing, mm-hmm. right? That has wording around the person who, that knows the individual best, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And that's our supportive decision-making where mm-hmm. Bob's a master at. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I've mm-hmm. learned from the Iris Institute, um, Dr. Bill Sullivan, Dr. Michael Bach and others, about supported decision-making. And and there are other provinces like in Alberta and British Columbia in which they do have legislation which includes, you know, who should be available to support the person. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, we've had practical experiences of where um, a person with an intellectual disability came into the hospital and, and the staff members at the time said, oh, we're not letting the trained worker come in because they're not on the hierarchy of decision-makers. Yeah. If they were in another province where they had the form that said they are the supported person, they, they would be in, allowed to come in. And, and the difficulty for the poor hospital staff is because they didn't allow the person in who knew the person well in terms of how to communicate with them, how to where's the best place to have discussions, um, they ended up with behavioral problems, which then prejudiced the care all the way down. Whereas if they had allowed the person in from the get-go, they would have had a, a better care experience for the patient for sure. And and in this case, the substitute decision maker, a family member, wanted the trained worker in. Um, And of course, the patient, our person with intellectual disability, would have gotten the appropriate care. And this was a situation which may have included um, rehab and actually ended up with a situation where they were denied rehab because of the behavioral response that was evoked earlier on. Now, so I've come to appreciate that, um, and I had to do some cajoling with patient representative in the hospital and so on to allow for the patient rep- or the patient's um, worker to come into the hospital. But I've sort of learned subsequently from uh, David Lepofsky, I think is his name, a lawyer who himself uh, with intellectual di- with a visual disability said, I could have used the human rights legislation to say that there's a duty to accommodate, but you don't want to bring down the hammer if you don't have to. And and if we look, there are supported decision-making tools, like in Western Australia has a very good tool. And, and it asks things like, you know, where, who, what technology is best to use? Because the goal is, let's give the person the best chance to see if they can participate in their decision-making. And as Tracy will say many times over, that they may not be able to verbally communicate wishes, but they may have another way of doing it. And lastly, I would say to this point, that even if we don't get consent from a, a legal consent, if we can get cooperation. In my bioethics mm-hmm. world, sometimes we may say we can't get consent, but can we get assent? And so therefore, if that same person has to go off to diagnostic imaging, to a CT scan, and with that scary thing that goes around you, well, maybe they might be more calm and because they go through that experience because of the trained worker who helped them understand what is next going to happen to them. And Indeed. so I just wanted to um, make that mm-hmm. point quite strongly. Okay, so my question is this. You both have talked about 
the incredible need for um, for a different kind of care for IDD for people with IDD. Mm-hmm. And this podcast, as you know, really has a big centerpiece of the seven keys. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering if um, you can speak a little bit about if you think or how yeah. the which seven keys or which of the keys really apply to this and in what ways. All seven keys apply. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. I, was, I was just trying to think of which, which one to speak to. If, if we're talking mm-hmm. about um, moving from in the dark experience to in the no experience, how do we equip family, person living with IDD proper based on the level of severity of disability that they're living with? Um, and the, their direct service or extended direct service, you know, specialists teams, right? To, to know, to do meaning making, what we're looking at, what, what may be on the near horizon or future horizon so that we can be prepared. That walking two roads aspect, you know, about hoping for the best and preparing for a different outcome, right? Mm-hmm. And often, and that, that can be frightening when we're trying to massage and nuance that. But I talk about very often with individuals about, do you drive? Yes. Do you have a car? Yes. Do you have car insurance? Okay. So you have, have planned for a potential accident or potential serious uh, change, uh, unexpected change, et cetera, et cetera, or an expected change, you know, putting on your winter tires, those sorts of things. Well, what about in the house? Do you have carbon monoxide or do you have and fire alarms? So if and a fire alarm is going to go off, now we've got a crisis situation. And we all have life experiences that that happens with. What, what, what people living with IDD tell us is stop treating us as as we're in, as if we're invisible, number one, talk directly to me, right? Uh, and uh, and when I don't understand, my support worker will will help, right? Um, and uh, so that how do we prepare for moving? We need to, you don't know what you don't know. So we need to help and start having really good conversations about what's your understanding and where's our meat, what's the meaning making. If we're talking about being informed, that's part of it, right? Uh, When we started this work, uh, I know that most people wouldn't have thought that most uh, IDD etiologies are life limiting, right? Mm -hmm. And how life limiting. You know, uh, the research shows us and the premature death ages show us that their chronological age is one thing, their biological age is 20 20 years older. Mm -hmm. And so we need to start thinking about what we would do Mm -hmm. for a 65-year-old at 40, Mm -hmm. right, in this population of individuals. And if their average life expectancy, which is still true, is 55, then we we need to be having this shared conversation and understanding early. We're talking about understanding style. Mm. Can I 
Can I just add too that um, picking up on things that Tracy has said all throughout this, and, and Sam, you asked, um, this thing about the, the ripple effect too. Um, and for many people with IDD, they are living in group homes. And we and, and the people who are affected in the ripple effect is where are hidden mm -hmm. because we think mostly of families, we think mm -hmm. of spouses, of children, and so on when we think of that. But in a home where somebody has known them sometimes for years, yeah, and they're seeing changes and they're knowing something's happening. So mm -hmm. they're experiencing some degree of anticipatory grief. Yeah. And then of course, when something happens, they they do experience grief, but mm -hmm. we may not necessarily rally around a care provider mm -hmm. in terms of grief support um, mm -hmm. in the way that we would if they were the sister, the brother, mm -hmm. the mom, mm -hmm. the dad. So there's a mm -hmm. ripple effect that's that's happening that's hidden. And, and so we need to take that into account as well. I don't know, Tracy, maybe she articulates better than I do, that whole zoomed out notion, you know, mm -hmm. we need to try to get involved earlier and, and go through what is the natural course of this illness and what mm -hmm. might you expect? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and because of the disability, what barriers might you expect and what can we do to remove some of those barriers ahead of time? And, and um, so, so there's a lot that we could say, but thank you. I, I'm thinking yeah. about um, what, about a person who is living in a a group home I'll just call mm -hmm. it a group home a supported living mm -hmm. um, their family might not be right there or they might not have family and how you both have mentioned that the the care workers the support mm -hmm. workers become their um I wouldn't family. say family of, family of choice because That's they right. don't necessarily choose them but they're their family right mm -hmm. and my experience in those scenarios um has also been, okay, so not only do they also feel very protective and know their um, clients, residents, mm -hmm. people so well, they also have a really hard time because they have advocated so hard and so long for the best life possible for these people and to advocate that they're not um, brushed with one stroke, yeah. that when it does come time to talk about um, decline, mm -hmm. the normal decline, uh, making decisions about not treating or discontinuing um, things like feeds or hydration, or in some scenarios talking um, about, yeah, like, um, I'm thinking of like, yeah, stopping a tube feed, let's just say mm -hmm. it is really a difficult shift when you have spent decades, mm -hmm. um, propping someone up, um, not just difficult for families, but for healthcare, um, workers yes. to, to, I the only word that comes to mind is grasp that to accept mm -hmm. it, like to shift lanes with us yes. um, because they've been fighting so long and so hard. Yeah. Um, it does get really complicated actually. It yeah. can. Um, in so many different ways. Yeah. It can. You know, one of the ways that I like to approach it, because I've been involved in many of those conversations mm -hmm. like you, Sammy. And one of the things that I think is important and where I think we can make quick gains um, as we're empowering every set of eyes and mm -hmm. hands and hearts um, uh, is around the meaning making of what you're seeing of where the individual is in their journey. Yeah. Um, so that so that it's not a sudden uh, 
conversation because yeah. we've had an exacerbation we've ended up in er and now everything mm-hmm. needs to be withdrawn mm-hmm. and, and number one number two allowing the time for that information mm-hmm. to be absorbed and processed mm-hmm. right don't go in and, and think we're you're, you're going to stop the feed today yeah right yeah. uh those sorts of things is there just needs some time to catch mm-hmm. up with some mm-hmm. of that information um but uh, I, I, I really do echo what you're saying about yes to everything that you said for family. Mm-hmm. And the, the language is the most, the chosen or trusted family, mm-hmm. and that's their direct uh, developmental service worker. Mm, I like right? that, the trusted family. Exactly. Um, and sometimes and quite often family do defer to yeah that team when Mm -hmm. it's in, you know, a congregate or supportive uh, independent living because they have worked and cared for them Mm -hmm. for 10, 20 years, Mm -hmm. um, some of these uh, wonderful people. And so uh, the whole whole point is, do you have and will you take the time to have the heart to address emotion first before you address all the other information, Mm -hmm. right? I think that that's always been very successful for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can can I share with you, just Tracy articulates something in one of your last keys there, invite yourself, initiate conversations about what to expect. And so in in a, I think a very parallel experience, there was the person who was had an intellectual disability. She was in the hospital, the team, Tracy and others, I believe went to the home they had conversations, asked questions about what to ex- so allow people to ask questions about what to expect, and then the person was able to be returned back to their their home and in the place that they knew. And this person with intellectual disability, the story that I'm familiar with, they were sufficiently capable to say, "I want to go home." Yes, they didn't want to be in the hospital, and 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 I this the our colleague from Central Community Livings when said this beautifully, said it beautifully. Um, when she got home, Mary is still Mary. She wasn't this disease. She was this person. And they, because of the preparation that was done, Tracy and others, she had, you know, a good care at home and she died at home as say, if somebody in my own situation, you know, Mm -hmm. died at home in, in amongst people whom she cared for and who loved her. Oh, that's such a great story, Bob. Thanks for sharing that. We'd like to end our interview with asking each of you, is there something that you're excited about for the future? Or if you have any advice for patients and families? Well, I'm very excited about our um, intellectual and developmental disability palliative care toolkit for Ontario Mm -hmm. that's going to be coming out this year Mm -hmm. um, to equip equip both healthcare and the developmental service sector um, and how to build a collaborative team. So it's all about, you know, uh, what's what are we looking for? What are the tools we use? How do we build the team so that that both sides are working with a foundational knowledge? Uh, and then other people will come and join and, and it will evolve from there and grow to become a movement. I mean, in the past 18 months, the word is spreading like crazy and we're nonstop having being asked to come talk about this and so we're so excited about 
the heart displays uh, from so many providers in healthcare and hospital administrators and regional directors. And it's like the whole system leveled down, uh, wanting to know how, do, how can we be a part of this and what do you need from us? Um, uh, I, I think the biggest takeaway message that we can do is just please take the time. Um, recognize that people living with intellectual and developmental disability uh, are people. They have personhood, they have value, they come with trauma. They are afraid of us in the healthcare sector. They've experienced um, things that really, you know, his, from a historical context where you, you know, um, genocide. And even, you know, in Canada. <clears throat> and so they're, the, when their, their family or developmental service worker comes with that fierce protective um, energy or questions or approach, I really want healthcare providers to look at that as a positive. Thank you for doing that. And I am going to join you with that so we can get that mistrust to come down and then really, really get to know the person, their social story, stay away from the assumptions of what quality is. Quality is what the individual says it is and their life is what the individual says it is. It's not ours to measure. Um, and and if the individual can't tell us the answer to those things because they have really profound quality is what the people that have been loving them, their life tell us, right? And we, we hopefully get to journey with them along a natural journey, um, just giving the best possible whole person centered care available mm -hmm. picking the team picking the team that has the knowledge skill and experience to do that mm -hmm. how about you bob with the last word <laughs> yes, thank you very much um you know a few years back there was an article i think it was in the new england journal of medicine about palliative care isn't it just the best care and I love the I love the, the the question and then the answer that kind of flowed from that question. Um, one of the things for me is I do hope that folks will get to know us as bioethicists because you know not many people know about the role of bioethicists and and that we can be present to help with make you know people are wrestling through what to do and that can be patients, families, and all staff. So that's one of the things that's very important to me. Um, and that bioethics is integral to all that we do. And we may not always recognize it, but we're making a judgment about the good that we want to do. And one of the things that I'm hopeful in, in Ontario, and we've been a little bit slow in this, and we've said this a few times, is picking up on the, the way we nuance the Healthcare Consent Act. And I think about it from the perspective of folks that's Indigenous people, when I think about people with different cultural backgrounds, and of course, when I think about, you know, folks with intellectual mm -hmm. disabilities and who they would need present to help them. And I think we have an opportunity on Ontario to sort of start to shift 
the, that thinking now and to, to nuance that. So that's one of the places where I'm hopeful. And I'm, grat I'm grateful that you have given us an opportunity to share our work. And we're looking forward to the toolkit being available. And Tracy is so right. We are being asked time and time and time again to present because people are interested. And we think mm -hmm. this is terrific. I really look forward to um, learning more about your toolkit that's been adapted uh, specifically for this population. So kudos to you guys. And thank you so much for being on our show. I've learned a lot. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for having <laughs> us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsa.